CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash here on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. I am Zach Seward. We got Adam Levine. We got Jen Sinassi. We got Will Foxley. Happy Friday. And wherever you are in the world, we wish that you execute your day as dominantly as the Denver Nuggets executed game one. <laughs> Of the NBA Finals. That's oh, nice. yeah, baby. Shout out oh, to Will yeah. Foxley. That's it. Up 1-0. There it is. All right. End of sports desk. We're going to change it to <laughs> DeFi world, and we're going to give it to Adam. What's going on with MakerDAO? Thanks, Zach. So first up, the community governing MakerDAO, the decentralized autonomous organization behind the stablecoin DAI, has paved the way to purchase up to an additional $1.28 billion in U.S. government bonds via crypto asset manager Block Tower Capital. It's something of a fascinating move from arguably the premier over-collateralized decentralized stablecoins, and the intended purpose here is to further diversify their token reserves or the assets backing the, the coin. But it's also interesting that it's happening right now, given that USDC issuer Circle actually just sold off all of their treasuries, which are substantially more, as concerns over a potential US default have swelled in recent months, although it looks like we've averted that at least for now. The centralized stablecoin moved away from holding US government debt, even as the decentralized stablecoin is moving towards it. Well, what do you take? What's your take on this one? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on MakerDAO. And to be honest, I have not followed along with a lot of the developments over the last two years. There's been a lot of back and forth. They've been adding real world assets or RWAs, as we like to say. Uh, there's been uh, Rune coming back into the picture. He's a co-founder of MakerDAO. Uh, he was there and then he wasn't there. And he came back and forth. There's a lot of drama there. Overall, what I see with MakerDAO, however, is that they're adding these real-world assets. They're increasingly making ties with lawyers, increasingly making ties with hedge funds, and increasingly making ties with non-crypto collateral. There used to be a time and place when MakerDAO was only backed by ETH and I believe the Brave token, right? So it was like purely a crypto project. And DAI was a product on the other side. You could put in ETH, you could put in the Brave token, and you'd be able to take out DAI as a stable coin. And like you said, Adam, it was over collateralized. So if the price of Ether went down and you had a loan out with DAI token, you would be liquidated or you'd have to uh, top off your loan. Nowadays, we have like this meshing of the two worlds. And maybe this was like the runway for Maker. But increasingly, I see a project that is susceptible to the real world, susceptible to lawyer contracts and susceptible to anything that comes along with that, right? Like the contagion in the actual financial industry uh, is now ever more present. 
I think this enables them to grow the project bigger, but I think it's a far cry from what it once was. Zach, to you. I mean, the crazy thing is that USDC, I believe, is one of the larger assets now backing DAI, right? So there is a bit of like risk diversification going on in by virtue of this move in re- response to what USDC is doing, right? USDC is moving away from US treasuries. But given that USDC is arguably, I think, and again, I'm trying to check the stats on myself here, arguably, I think the biggest asset backing the decentralized stablecoin DAI would make sense that they would want to take on some treasuries as a potentially low risk alternative to what USDC as an issuer is doing itself. So these things are very intertwined. And I think DAI has come a long way from its truly crypto native roots, right? It's trying to sort of embrace both like experiments around real world assets. Its uh, asset backing is obviously much more significantly kind of tied to the world of centralized intermediaries now than it had been. And so I think it's kind of an interesting response to what USDC is doing, probably just because USDC is such a big part of the pie in terms of assets that are backing this stablecoin die uh, right now. So it is funny to see these things kind of moving in divergence. But then when we think about their interrelations and their interconnectedness, maybe there's some holistic picture that makes sense, but I'm not quite sure. Jen, what do you think? I'm going to make Adam tie all the things together for me. So yesterday, MakerDAO announced that the community voted to get rid of $500 million worth of the Paxos stablecoin. And they said it was because they want to focus on their own stablecoin and it wasn't accruing any revenue. And now we get this news uh, about the treasury bonds. I think that uh, in general, DAOs need to diversify their treasuries for obvious reasons. But can we connect the dots between those two pieces of news? And what does this maybe tell you about MakerDAO's long-term view? Like my understanding of US treasury bonds is there things that you would want to hold on for a long time, which doesn't really bode well with like the DAO and DeFi ecosystem in my brain? Yeah. So I think it's a good question. Treasury bonds, to be clear, can be very low duration, right? You can be talking about like a three-month contract or something like that, effectively, like just a very, very short-term lend. So they also go up to, you know, 10 plus years. Um, So that's not really the consideration here. I think the, the thing that's interesting is that the world is a dangerous place right now. And again, like the only way that you can really know that the investments that you have are going to keep up with the increasing costs and kind of all of the challenges, stability stuff around the world right now is by really, really being diversified. And it's, it's an interesting move, right? Because to a certain extent, by if they were to remain just in the world of say, let's just say just Ethereum, then that means that to the extent that Ethereum goes down, that means that the protocol has few options but to start to kind of liquidate people, right? Uh, whereas if you're looking at you know, a more diversified backing, like this is the problem that uh, USDC had, which is that essentially all of their assets were in treasuries. And so by keeping all of their assets in treasuries, it means that you could have a catastrophic failure due to the failure of that. Now, I think the challenge with this is that the world as it moves forward is likely to have some failures and some successes, right? So diversifying in this way is almost a conceit to say, hey, you know, we acknowledge that the world is an unsafe place and that this is the kind of best solution that we can come up with. But it's not really a solution that's safe. But that's just because there isn't safety in the world as it stands today around financial assets. Zach? Hey, I just want to fact check myself. So at one point, USDC was something like 50% of the assets backing the DAI stablecoin. Currently, it's around 25%. So definitely not the lion's share, but certainly a significant chunk of those assets do have ties to the real world in terms of banks that are sitting on these dollars that sit behind the tokenized dollar in USDC that rides on various blockchain rails. So just want to get that stat in there before we wrap this one and toss it to Jen. Okay. We are talking about another scam on Twitter. Such sad news for a Friday. 
But OpenAI's CTO's <laughs> Twitter account was hacked and it promoted a fake crypto called the OpenAI token. Once hacked, the attackers leveraged the account to execute a fraudulent airdrop. The tweet reached about 80,000 people before it was taken down. Scam sniffer on Twitter said that the attackers got away with around $110,000. Will, I'm going to toss this one off to you. It's so easy to spin up one of these tokens, right? And it's becoming increasingly easier and easier to launch these attacks. How do people stay safe out there? I mean, the CTO of OpenAI is not safe from Twitter attacks and from launching their own token without knowing it, then I don't know who is. They're going to go after people in these places, right? They're going to go after people in uh, places of notoriety. OpenAI has just been in every headline for the last six months. So to be a CTO position is a trusted institution or a trusted startup, not quite an institution yet. Maybe one day when a Skynet takes over, it's an institution. But for now, just a big startup in the space. Everybody knows about it. People are going to be paying attention to that, just like they're paying attention to Kathy Woods, the world saying, like, how should I think about my investment advice? And people do make decisions based on Twitter accounts. So if you're able to grab that and then you know, shill some sort of token, it's a very easy scheme to make money. This account itself has seemingly made a decent amount of money. There seems to be some sort of like uh, software program teaming up with the people who scam them and they're like splitting the money in two different ways. Interesting. I've not seen that before, but we have seen lots of Twitter attacks like this in the past. The most notable one was back in 2020, where we had that Florida teenager. He was like 17. He broke into uh, Twitter's backend, was able to tweet for like multiple different accounts for Bitcoin, Barack Obama's account, uh, the Cash App account, many others, including Coindesk's account, were, uh, were taken over and tweeted about Bitcoin. So that's the thing that goes on on Twitter all the time. Just be careful. Don't send money to a random project or contract you have not seen before. Adam? Yeah, I mean, following up on our story yesterday, I think that this is just another reminder that the speed at which these things happen and kind of the the FOMO, you know, try to jump in as quickly as possible is kind of the problem. And so again, like, it's not to say that you can't make money doing that, but it is to say that to the extent that people do follow that path, which is, hey, I see a project, I think it's going to be big, I'm going to get in right now and I'll do my diligence later. Like, I think that that increasingly, especially with these higher profile things, just doesn't pay off. And the, the risks associated with it are quite significant. So the good news here is that only 80 people, only a little bit over $100,000, but still 80 people and $100,000 in that amount of time is pretty wild. Zach? This is a serial scammer, though. There's been some interesting stats compiled suggesting that this is a repeat offender who's been able to take in something like $1.8 million through a number of these attacks. So I think this is we're really missing the story here is the emergence of a new bad guy on the scene, the so-called pink drainer. Who was out there scamming something like 648 total victims, according to one dashboard on Dune Analytics. So it is fascinating to watch the emergence of this cottage industry around scamming people out of their money. And it is sad to see, but hey, that's sort of uh, permissionless finance uh, in all of its uh, ugliness as well. So anyway, just wanted to you know, suggest that you know, we have a character emerging out here uh, in the shady underbelly of Twitter.com. Jen, what do you think? Who could it be? I want to just elaborate on something Will said, because we kind of skirted it over, and I think it's pretty interesting. Pink Drainer used a type of malware as a service service, where the platform takes 30% of everything you steal, and you get to keep the remaining 70%. It is just like unbelievable to me to see that platforms like this are popping up and being able to operate um, and just enabling these criminals to get away with money. So 
watch yourselves out there, people. It's becoming easy. It is becoming easy indeed. I want to go back to the CTO position. The fact that a CTO is compromised, CTOs for the most part are very diligent about their security, right? These are the people in your company who are always going around being like, are you using two-factor authentication? Are you using like the web app version on your phone with Google auth or are you using like 2FA via text message? Like they're, they're the ones always turning over these stones and to see someone like that get compromised makes you start to worry that maybe anyone can be compromised. And we have seen that in the past, right? Where the prominent person within tech falls for one of these things. They open something in their email that they're not supposed to. And it, it seems like a boring story, but it does happen to people and it can happen to you and then you lose money. So I guess this is like our little shout out on the show. Just be careful what you click on. We say that probably once a week at this point because these scams still be happening. Zach? Yeah, they definitely do. Be careful out there. And if it's if it seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. OpenAI dropping in. a token is not going to happen. So pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Consider throwing cool your retirement it. into it. No, no. Do not listen to Will. No, 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 no. Adam, I think, had a more cogent point. I saw his hands. So I'm going to throw it his way. Yeah, I think the the thing to like, so all that's true, like personal security is really important, but it's another downside about using this type of platform, right? We mentioned the kind of the uh, like really broad scale attack on Twitter a year or two ago. That was not individual things being compromised. That was an engineer got compromised. And again, if you look at, at other types of things, we've seen this before as well. So it, you know, there's just risk implicit in sort of any of these platforms. Again, like your security is sort of subordinated to their ultimate security. And to the extent that you're a public figure and to the extent that you have a lot of reach, well, that means you're really, really valuable to compromise. Jen? Is it, it feels like the tech people are getting compromised more so than others. Wasn't it a dev that got compromised in the Ronin bridge attack as well? Just what's going on out there? Big I saw someone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like, again, as companies get bigger, your attack surface just goes up really, really significantly. So the attack surface is smaller now at Twitter now that they laid off 75% of their people, right? Uh, but <laughs> it's still a big company, you know, and it was the same thing with the Axie story is it's just like they grew a lot. And as a result of that, that means you've got more vulnerability. Will? Yeah. Last thought on this is just the fact that everyone's so online nowadays. These people who work in the tech side of things, the security side of firms, they're often posting about like their daily habits, where they're at, all that information. So it's very easy to find this information now about someone who might possibly be in charge of like private keys or be in charge of security for a company. It's easier than ever to get that information just because we are so online. Talking about my favorite subject, Bitcoin mining, let's dive into it. A new report from Matrixport shows that most Bitcoin miners are selling their Bitcoin onto the open market, suggesting that the Low revenues and continued pressure on Bitcoin mining difficulty is causing miners to just sell their Bitcoin and not hodl it, which was mostly the case back in 2021 and 2022. Adam, I'm going to throw this story up to you. I think anyone who's marginally paying attention to the mining industry isn't super shocked by this. Luckily, we have like a lot of public companies out there nowadays for Bitcoin miners. There's over 20 of them listed on like NASDAQ, London Stock Exchange, uh, even up in Canada. So we do get their financials every quarter, sometimes even every month. We see that most of these miners are actually just selling into the open market. But any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously been a really challenging time for Bitcoin miners. A lot of them took out dollar-denominated debts. And then as the price of Bitcoin went down, that caused real problems for them, forcing them to liquidate at prices that they were not happy with. A lot of these Bitcoin miners really kind of made their play saying, hey, 
We're actually not so much a miner as we are a way to bet on the price of Bitcoin because we retain as much Bitcoin as possible on our balance sheet. And I think that, again, like that, that narrative kind of fell apart <laughs> as the price uh, of uh, Bitcoin went down, but their dollar denominated debts for building out everything, you know, uh, and continuing to pay for ongoing costs uh, did not. So not surprising to see this. I think that they're probably thrilled that the price is where it is right now because it allows them to continue to operate uh, in a way that's above their costs, which was not true for the, for the whole time. Like during the dips and the kind of significant stuff we saw, especially around FTX, those numbers dipped below what was probably profitable for them. That's a very difficult situation to be in as one of these kind of larger institutional players. And as you said, like they also have to disclose this if they're publicly traded, right? Which is not great for optics, not great for everything. So this isn't a happy environment for miners, but it's definitely, you know, like a better kind of place for them to be than we were talking about maybe six months ago. Zach? Hey man, there's significant upside convexity for miners. Oh. I'm really smart. I just read that from the report. Don't worry. I didn't, I don't even know what those words mean. Could not tell you, but it's included in the story. I mean, I don't know. You guys, uh, what, how are you guys liking on the upside convexity? You like, you liking the looks here? I don't know. Will, you feeling, it's you feeling good? good? Yeah. Feeling very convex today. Very, very okay. convex cool. today. Cool. No, I, I like what Adam said. Like, it's a better place for Bitcoin miners than it was six months ago. Zach's <laughs> thoughts were like useful somewhat. <laughs> Maybe. My brain is mush. My brain is mush. We'll gloss over what Zach said. Thank you guys. Move Thank on. you guys. <laughs> Now, the debt part is really important here. Uh, a lot of miners did take out huge loans. Like these miners had, you know, into the hundreds of millions of dollars of debt. And when interest rates went up, especially when interest rates went up, fastest rate hikes in US history, became very apparent that taking out a lot of debt was a pretty bad idea, especially when the thing that you produce, Bitcoin, basically goes inverse the price of debt, right? So price of debt went up to 5%. Bitcoin went down to as low as $15,000. These Bitcoin miners were in a really bad spot, and a few of them actually wiped out completely, went to Chapter 11. But we're six months past that. I think a lot of these miners were able to restructure, do have a lot of hard assets. They have energy contracts, they have infrastructure, they have Bitcoin miners themselves. So they were able to figure it out. And I think we're, we're in a better spot right now, guys. This is, this is good stuff. We're in a better spot. Jen? You have this optimism. You keep saying this is good. And then I read the article and it says that mining is unprofitable and competitive and the machines produced before 2022 were unprofitable. So tell me the bad part. The bad part? No, I'm here to show mining. No, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll say some good stuff and some bad stuff. The bad stuff is like a lot of these machines are not doing as well as people thought. Uh, a lot of these Bitcoin ASIC manufacturers, just like the token producers out there, just pumped out machines as fast as they could. They didn't really meet a lot of standards. And so a lot of them are failing. People are seeing a lot of high failure rates which is unfortunate because these machines cost at one point about eight to $10,000 per machine. So you're looking at like multiple years to be able to pay it off. And then you can't pay it off because it just broke. And now you have a pet rock instead of an actual Bitcoin miner. So that's one bad part. On the good side, energy is getting cheaper. Inflation seems to be somewhat tamed in that sector, at least getting better. So we sort of had like these two things going against each other. And I think the marginal Bitcoin miner is slightly profitable right now. There are some who are still unprofitable, but for the most part, people are like doing better than they were again six months ago. I'll throw it back up to Zach. I mean, I will second what you just said, and I will continue my two-part streak of saying nothing of value, and I will pass it straight to Adam. Yeah, I think that kind of one other interesting part here is that what we're really seeing is we're seeing Bitcoin miners act like sort of industrial producers of a product that has no value outside of speculation, <laughs> right? Like really, that's what we're talking about here. 
Like if the only value of oil was speculation on the future price of oil and there wasn't actually any utility, you know, for like powering cars and industry and stuff, then you would see similar dynamics here. And again, like that's the weird part about the industry is that in many ways it's hugely competitive, right? It's very expensive and resource intensive, capital intensive, big investments. But the underlying asset is still a fundamentally speculative asset with no utility outside of that speculation. Again, we can talk about like transactional nature, stuff like that. All of that is kind of utility, but it's not really used like that in most of its use. Most of it is people being like, hey, I think the price is going to be higher in the future, right? Like that's kind of the, the argument for, for having it and for holding it. So it's a weird industry to be in. And I think it's a weird time to be in that industry. And it's a good reminder, I think, to miners out there that number does not only go up. And when number goes down, a lot of the choices that you made thinking number would go up for a lot longer than it did probably are going to be seen as bad. But let's move on to the next fun topic. All right. Let's take a look at the ICO era. There's a nice little series going on over at Consensus Magazine called Coindesk Turns 10, looking back into recent history that sometimes can feel like ancient history. Now, ICOs are the era of the initial coin offering. All sorts of crazy shenanigans went on. The idea was lofty. We're going to democratize access to raising capital from investors the world over. The outcome was messy. Some, by some counts, something like 80% of, out, of ICOs were just outright scams. Uh, there have been some good products to emerge from the ICO era. And in this thoughtful piece by David Morris, often contributor on The Hash, he sort of unpacks this era of the ICO, looks at what went right, what went wrong, and if there's any redeeming values from that crazy little era. I'm going to throw this to Adam. You probably watch this uh, more closely than the rest of us here on The Hash today. What did you think of this piece? What stood out to you? Um, and, and what do you think uh, is the lesson from the ICO boom times? I mean, I think that the important piece of information is to understand that everything happened in real time during this time. There was no plan. There were no best practices. Everybody was making it up. And if something looked like it works, then that then became the thing that everybody else did. So again, like going back to the very earliest things, you know, the first kind of uh, like world of, of non-currency tokens was focused on the tokenizing of essentially crowdfunding rewards was the way that this was originally thought of. The idea here was that, hey, you've, you've you know, supported something on Kickstarter, but it's, you know, now a year and a half later and you're like, hey, I got to pay my bills. You know, I got a college tuition that I need to deal with or something like that. And so I need my money back. Right. And so then at that point, like, what are you going to do? You're going to ask for a refund from the guy who's doing the campaign, which then endangers the campaign. So the idea of using tokens as a way to sort of intercept that and be like, hey, actually, you get this token. And then that token is something that you can then sell to somebody else. Uh, like that really is the kind of core idea that then led to this ICO phenomenon. And the problem with it was, of course, that once people figured out how much money could be made there, then it stopped really being about many of these early, really interesting projects and became more about, hey, I can make enough money here that I don't actually have to build anything. I can just win based off this. And again, like, uh, you know, I was a very early supporter of Dan Larimer in the space and watched him go through this cycle a number of times in ways that were pretty routinely disappointing, uh, you know, and like respect for him for, for like making a ton of money and for figuring out how to make his life work in a way that was fundamentally different than anybody, you know, else who I know in this space. But at the same time, like what was actually produced, right? What actually came out of it? And I think that's the big kind of underlying problem is. ICOs wound up being a win for the founding team almost always and a loss for the community that did the funding almost always as well. Will? 
That was the most PC take on Dan Larimer and that whole thing going on there. I, I appreciated the, uh, the touch with that. Uh, bravo. Uh, no, I think the ICO boom definitely holds a place. And it was like a, a well uh, thought out idea to have that in the center of the, this Coindesk piece, right? Because it sort of was the reason that the whole industry blew up bigger than it was. Think back to 2011, 2012. It was Bitcoin and a few Bitcoin altcoins. There were some ideas kind of floating around. And not really until Ethereum started doing its thing, and then people started building on top of Ethereum with ICOs, and people started making knockoffs of both Bitcoin and Ethereum at a rapid pace, did we see an explosion of this industry to a larger size before it really was people who were in it for the tech. Maybe they saw it like booming up and becoming worth a lot more money in the future, but they were there because they wanted to be like anti-government, or they're there because they saw something that no one else saw. They're very like libertarian. Maybe they just like cryptography in general and thought Bitcoin and internet money was the future. But we didn't really have that explosion and stuff until the ICO boom, right? And since then, we've had like a lot of solid projects come out of the ICO boom, which is awesome. And there's a great number of names within this article. So go check it out. Jen, I'll throw it to you for last thoughts. Yeah. Wasn't this the first time that celebrities and influencers really got involved in crypto and started shilling projects? I feel like for me, when I think about the ICO boom, it was like the lessons around not listening to these people who we hold on a pedestal, which we still talk about on this show every day. And so when I think about the ICO boom, I think it's like, I think everyone needs to go and read this article and learn the lessons that came out of that era, because all the things we're talking about that happened then are still happening today. And if we take a moment to look at history, maybe we can forge a better future. Shout out to Paragon and the game and the subsequent settlement that came from that. Anyway, that's a deep cut. That's it for the show today. We hope you have a great weekend. Zach, Adam, Jen, Will signing off. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.